Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I was born on the 30th of March, 1934. I wonder where my life went. I'd done that much shifting jobs. Like I, I was a painter. I saved me time to be a painter and decorator. Then I got the chance when I went to New York in 1964 on the Irish handball team. Toronto got the World Championships in 1967. To win the World Championship, you wonder where your time went. He loved the handball and he loved singing. And, you know, even in latter years when he had hung up the guitar and, and, and the singing, he would come to all our gigs whenever he could get to them, he would come. He travelled all over America with the handball as well. Like he played in the American Nationals, that was in San Francisco. So like he travelled all over America to different tournaments as well. Like. He was a great character. Once we went to Ballinacargie in County Westmead, he was playing in All-Ireland semi-final. It was Saturday night and on Monday morning we got back and my father asked me, what kept you? I said, it's the first time I went to Mullingar and came home through County Wexford. Throughout my career, Joey was in my corner right up until I finished when I was 28. Joey Marr is world handball champion, Ireland's only reigning world champion. At 36 years of age, he must be one of the oldest world title holders in a sport so skilled and demanding as handball. Joey used to get a walkover off, but um, it was a Christmas day. I was probably only about four or five. Dad brought me up. He said, I'm going to bring you up to see the greatest handballer I've ever seen. So Joey opened the door and Dad said, uh, I'm due to play in the Gale Inn. And Joey kind of smiled and he said, uh, what's your name? And he says, Tom O'Connor. And he said, uh, normally I get a walkover in this. No one ever bothers me. And Dad says, well, I'm not giving you a walkover. He said, so I'm due to play in Gormanstown. Joey kind of looked a bit perturbed anyway. And he said, right, I'll get me I'll get me gear. And Dad says, and by the way, I need a lift up as well. <laughs> so that was kind of my first ever, 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 I suppose, viewing it a man. But from that point on, like it was, he was just a man mountain to me in every way. And I saw him play that day and he made Dad suffer for that, uh, making him play for sure. It wasn't a good Christmas day for Dad. Joey was a, a, a legend. He was an absolute gentleman. I couldn't praise the man enough. He was a thorough gentleman, absolutely. He was very well respected. And of course, I got to know a lot of people in the sporting world that I wouldn't normally get to know people who played football in Crow Park, won All-Ireland medals, and of course Joey himself uh, had quite a number of All-Ireland medals. I remember being in his house on a few, quite a few occasions, and I remember taking a, going looking for a spoon in the cabinet in the drawer one day, and there were two All-Ireland medals looking up at me. The late Joey Moore from Drogheda, a master of his craft, or shall I say his many crafts, World handball champion, multiple Irish champion, US and Canada across junior, senior and masters. The list is endless, but away from the courts and the alleys, there were many more strings to his bow. 
Joey was a family man. While his day job of painting and decorating took him far and wide, he also found time to play music, becoming famous all over again on British TV. And then there was the business of running a pub and running greyhounds, at which he also became a master. And not to mention his spell in the Canadian police when he was able to hone his handball skills by directing the Toronto traffic. Yes, this was a man of many talents, and such was the vast array of his sporting accomplishments, the town he loved so well felt it only fitting to erect a life-size bronze sculpture in his honour on the banks of the Boyne, six years before passing to his eternal reward. So how and where did Joey's passion for handball originate? And what was his path to becoming Ireland's first-ever world champion and one of the sport's all-time greats? Handball wasn't considered one of Ireland's major sports, but around Drogheda and South Louth, participation levels were high. Local historian Sean Collins, who also happens to be Joey Maher's son-in-law, paints a picture of the local scene and how Joey was introduced into the game. Handball was always a minority sport, uh, played in pockets all around the country. You find places in Kerry, Clare, Wexford, uh, even a little bit in Dublin, and Drogheda and the South Loud area was always very strong for handball. I know there's record of a handball alley being in West Street in Drogheda in the 1700s. In the early 1900s, at the, at the turn of the century, there were four handball alleys in the town and four in the vicinity of the town. There was one at Term and Fecken beside the pub. There was one at Clawhead. Uh, there was one in Toker and another one in that area. So there were four there and there were four in the town and competitions were played. Uh, Joey's uncles, uh, the Sassfield brothers, were all noted handball players. They, they lived in Marrick Lane, just below Millmount. Uh, Millmount, as such, had a handball alley. It was a military barracks. But Joey told me it was actually what they called a five alley. In England, they play a game very similar to handball called fives. And he said the ball alley in Millmount was a five alley. That's what it was built for. It would date to 1808 because the a museum building, uh, the back wall of it is the handball wall, and it was 1808, so that's when it was built. Uh, but by that time, there was a ball alley at the bottom of Mary Street, uh, where McKeown's pub was. Uh, there was one in West Street. There was one at St. Peter's School in, in Bolton Street. Uh, so there was a plethora of handball alleys in the area, and plenty of competitions being played with the South Loud men and the Drogheda men. But when Joey was born in the 1940s, he was from Millmount, or Mount St. Oliver, and that's where he grew up, and there was a strong handball tradition in the area. Uh, he told me that Paddy McKeown, a near neighbour, uh, Paddy was the man that first showed him how to play handball and explain the rules. And that was his earliest memory of playing. And then, of course, his, his uncles encouraged him. Uh, up until uh, 1956 when he won his first All-Ireland and it was the first All-Ireland to come to Drogheda. So Joey's uncles and his neighbour Paddy McKeown had their parts to play in introducing him to the game in those early years while there were others the man himself looked up to and the sheer history of the sport wasn't lost on Joey either. Handball is dated back three and a half thousand years and it was the like of Austin Tag, John Ryan. J.J. Gilmartin and Kenny, Rhino Wexford, Austin Tiger at Dublin, and J.J. Uh, Gilmartin and Kenny, Bobby Gratton. It was the like of them for this now to pour into me about the handball. Uh, when you start, well, do you play the hardball? That is the Irish game. It's dated back three and a half thousand years, and they had to copy the hardball to make the hurling ball. The hurling ball is made exactly the same as the hardball, only there's no big uh, edger, you know, the big kind of a tape that's around the, the slitter. Sean Collins, the emergence of the uh, St Mary's Club in Millmount, that was a significant uh, development, wasn't it? And there's quite a bit of history associated with it. I read recently that uh, a policeman 
called Tady Kelly, a Limerick man, founded the St Mary's Handball Club. Uh, Tady Kelly would be a grandfather of Gary Kelly and great-grandfather of Ian Hart. So there's a hell of a sporting tradition in that family. Uh, the Millmount Barracks as such was handed over to Drogheda Corporation with the removal of the British Army and all that. It ceased being a military barracks. So it was used for municipal housing. In 1930, the council gave the ball alley to the Wolf Tones Football Club, but it fell into disuse. And sometime in the early 1940s, Mr. Kelly started the handball club. And Joey would have been about eight or nine uh, at that stage. He always told an interesting story. Mr. Kelly was a NAM detective. And Joey said when they were children and when Kelly would come in to look at them, they'd always say, Mr. Kelly, show us your gun. They were more interested in seeing his gun than anything else. But he was the man accredited with starting the club. The handball of Milman. When Pappy Sarsfield, Christy Clark and Jackie Murray, John Beryl, Lyle Cunningham, they started that handball uh, handball club. And they just, it's not, it, was, it wasn't a handball club. It was a whole community centre, that place. We were all, if it's Sunday morning, we all even feel it to go out to play football. Terry Riley we feel that the word uh, the selector would come up from the panels. Terry Riley would go down and play for them. The Redford Conferry was from the Oliver Plunkett's. Then there was Paddy Riley, Huey Riley, myself, my brother Owen, Jim and Joey Shields, Frank Campbell. Now that's seven, that's the half of the tones team. And we'd be, uh, our selector, Jamie Carroll, would have up for us. And don't forget, you'd be picked up in the bus here and go to Castle Bellingham or something, wherever we were going to play. From everywhere, from the Royalties in Milman, Mount St. Oliver, so there was a heap of Mount St. Oliver played, Congress Avenue, the McKennas and the, the, the Tauntons and uh, then Desi Nealis and the Robbie Nealis and F- Flamingo Fleming, the neighbour of mine below in Maple Drive, he played in it. Priest Lane, you go over there, there was the Kinslers, there was uh, the Flins, there was the Kerrigans, there was the Moonies, the, the Platten Road, you had Esmond and Donald Sarsfield, they played the handball, you had uh, the Quins. And Sean Collins, one of the greatest rivalries around Drogheda would have been between Joey and uh, Red Confrey. That there was a great uh, mutual respect between the pair. Yes, there there were two amazing handball players. Um, sadly, uh, Fenton Confrey died quite young, but I often heard Joey talk about him very, very fondly. Uh, Joey reckoned that Confrey was perhaps one of the most natural born handball players he ever saw. He said he never met anybody that was such a natural as Confrey was, and Confrey won a couple of All Irelands, but sadly. He, he he passed away, but uh, they were very good friends, and I know that the country family, who I met on many occasions, had a great growth for Joey. Well, the sport of handball takes many different guises. For instance, the game in Ireland is very different to the one in the US. And then there's hardball and softball. Joey's eldest son, Mick, himself a noted handballer in his day, explains the not-so-subtle differences between the two. Well, the difference between hard and softball is exactly what it says on the tin. One is hard and one is soft. <laughs> so a hardball, is, it's uh, a lot harder to play, actually, because the ball is, is so... It's like a golf ball, actually, and you hold your hand if you don't hit it correctly, you know. I think the hardball is actually more skillful to hit the ball properly. That's basically what it was. Where the softball, you could hit it with your fist. It'd still go up on the wall, but if you hit it, if you hit a hardball with your fist, you break your knuckles. So that's basically the difference, you know. You had to hit the hardball with the open hand full on, like, you know. And your your father's successes, the first of those would have come in the early 50s. That's right, yeah. In 1956, uh, they got, you got the breakthrough with the junior softball singles, hardball singles, and... Uh, hardball doubles with Joe McArdle from um, Dunleer and he was a good hardball player as well and they won the junior doubles that year so that's basically when he broke through into the senior ranks 
And then he won his first senior title in 1961 in hardball singles. And then he, he won it again in 63. And then in 64, he won the singles, hardball singles and hardball doubles with a great friend of his from Drada, Paddy Riley from Marion Park. And this was all building up for your dad, all building up to an appearance in New York and that uh, world championship in 64. That's right. When he won the All-Ireland in, in 64, he uh, represented Ireland in New York. Uh, he got beaten by Jimmy Jacobs, who was a, a great handballer at the time. The handball in America was totally different to Ireland because it was a different court, a different ball, and you could play the ceiling as well, whereas in Ireland it was just the four walls. And if you had four walls, most of them were three wall eyes. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, and was 64, do you think that was a real learning curve for your dad and did it whet his appetite then for really going for a world championship three years later? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. He, he saw the way handball was uh, moving forward internationally and he decided to go for it. Then he, he was invited over to Toronto to train for the World Championships which are going to be held in Toronto in 67 so he went over and for the three years he trained in the 40 or 20 courts learned all the hooks and hops and all the different shots that they used over there and then he went on and won it in, in Toronto in 67 When I got the opportunity to go to Toronto I took it I learned the game out there and of course it's as you know it's a different sport out there altogether the courts the dimensions of the courts are six, 20 by 40 and 20 feet high the dimensions of the Irish courts are 60 by 30 and 30 feet high. Our courts are concrete, whereas out there it's more tailored. They've got a hardwood floor, maple floor, and the walls are finished in a very smooth plaster with gloss paint. They also play the ceiling shots out there. Uh, they've got the hooks and the hops and what have you. It's really more tailored and they go into it in a bigger way. There's a story told that you improved your game, particularly your overhead play, when, uh, as a policeman and whilst working. Uh, how did this come about? What, in fact, is the story behind that? Well, I guess uh, that was when I was directing traffic. Uh, instead of just calling on the traffic the normal way a police officer would call it, I would swing my hand this way and that way, the left and right. I guess the motors were a bit puzzled at times, but there was no accidents and uh, I was happy anyway, my overarm came on. Yes, Joey there speaking to John Kerwin on a TV interview conducted in the early 1970s on his magnificent win wearing the Canadian singlet but also the first Irishman to win the world title. That relocation to Canada and his subsequent employment as a police officer certainly paid dividends but it also had consequences for Joey's family life. In order to train and compete he had to uproot his wife Doris and young family from their home in Drogheda. But Linda, Joey's only daughter and only four and a half years of age when the family upstick has nothing but happy memories from those childhood days. I did primary school over there. I made my first communion in St. Margaret's Church in Canada. We lived in Wilson Avenue, just on the outskirts of Toronto. Dad's brothers, um, Dermot and Owen, emigrated over to the family and they stayed there and we still were very much in contact with them. Yeah, he went to 65 and we all moved over with him and he was training there for three years so the whole family went and he worked over there as a he, he worked as a policeman actually he was in the Metropolitan Police in Toronto uh, one of the brothers was born over there Eddie was born in Canada after after winning the world title he promised my mum that he'd come back to Ireland because uh, she was a bit homesick at the time so he said right we'll go home so when he came home then he won the All-Ireland in 68, 69 and 1970. Softball and, and hardball singles, uh, three years on, on, on the trot. So that kind of uh, set him up then for the World Championships in 1970, which was being held in Ireland. Pat Kirby was representing um, America that year. 
because uh, it was in the 6 to 30 courts back in Ireland. So he, he had played 6 to 30 before he left for America, obviously. And uh, Pat was a great handballer. So um, they got to the final anyway, and uh, Pat beat that in the final that year. But it was a great tournament here in Ireland, and it was the opening of the glass Ali and Crow Park it was a, a big uh, event at the time he when he was 33 when he won it when he won the world title in Toronto and then he was 36 when he defended it in Ireland it was, maybe age was catching up on him a little bit then at that stage but uh, still to, to be still playing top handball at 36 years of age was a, a big achievement to find himself as a policeman in Toronto. Uh, when he was interviewed on the Late Late Show, Gay Bourne asked him about being a policeman and what it was like. And he said that when he went there, he uh, Gay seemed to think it was a bit of a shoo-in uh, into the police. Well, I suppose maybe it was because they asked him to come. But he said, if you come and play, we'll make you a policeman. But he said he had to write uh, to the old school in Priest Lane uh, seeking his educational attainments and all this type of thing. And he said... I wrote to Mick Leach, he said, Lord of mercy on him. And so at the next interval, Gay Bourne said, we just had a call in, and Mick Leach is not dead. He's alive and well and living in Bettystown, which he was. Indeed, his son, uh, Mick Jr., lives there, and Huey, they, they live there to the present day. But uh, that night on the Late Late Show, Joey had him prematurely <laughs> dead. Uh, but so that was Joey. When he came back from Canada, he started uh, his own painting business here. My father knew, he, he was a tradesman, and yet, uh, my boss, Paddy McGuigan, a great boss he was, and not many can say they liked the boss, you know, but he was a great boss, Paddy, and uh, he says to me one day, uh, your father says he, I was in his class in school, and if one of the teachers got sick, he was called out of the class for to go and teach uh, in the class that that teacher was sick in. And even to see if if there were uh, older, an older class than we were in, your father was still put in and he could still teach, he says. He was a hell of an intelligent, brainy man. Now, where did his brains go, Joe? You didn't get them anyway. <laughs> He returned home uh, to start his, his painting business and continue playing handball, which he did uh, literally till the day he died. Uh, handball was his first love and everything else was second to handball. He he had that sort of great grow for the game and understanding of the game. The Franciscans at Garmondson were very good to the handball players in the Drogheda area. Sadly, Millmount was condemned effectively at the end of the day. Uh, there was a, he told me as a child, he remembered them building a black wall, and the black wall actually collapsed. You can, you can see it up there still. So they would go to Garmentstown uh, in the evening time and play in the ball alley there, and they were allowed to use the, the swimming pool. And uh, so Garmentstown was just a natural thing for them to do. On a summer's evening, they all got on their bikes and off they went to Garmentstown and played in the big alley. That's it. it was a 60, 60 by 30. Uh, the standard one we know would be 40 by 20. Uh, but the 60 by 30 is the, is the more traditional game. Even Michal, his son in his younger days, would tell you about going off to Garmentstown on his bike to play handball. And that painting and decorating business which Sean and Mick alluded to also played a part in how Joey met his wife, Doris. Here's daughter Linda again. The story of how they met, my uncle Finton, Mama's brother, was an apprenticed painter with Joey in McGuigan's. And McGuigan's was in Narrow West Street. And I think Finton was a really nice man and they became very good friends. So Joey discovered he had a beautiful younger sister. And I think that's where it all started. Joey made his way down to Green Hills anyway. And Doris was very young. She was about 15. And lo and behold, they started to go out together and they were married within four or five years. So they got married in 1957. 
they moved to um, Jean Kavanagh's, a flat above Jean Kavanagh's shop in the Bullring. And from there then they got a house in Marion Park. And at this stage they had three children, Mick, myself and David. The last of the siblings, Eddie, was the only one born in Canada. And sadly, Eddie passed away in later years. Joey himself continued to play handball at every available opportunity and collected the last of his Irish senior softball titles in 1973 before he won another US singles championship in Knoxville in 1974. All the while he was busy painting and decorating before another of his big passions, music, soon came to the fore. Indeed, it quickly took on a life of its own. So was there a family background in singing and playing instruments? It comes from the Sassies. Now, even though the Mahas like there's a first cousin of mine and his headman in the draw the brass band, Michael Maher. And my Uncle Joe, I remember going up and he played in the draw the bagpipes band years ago. We used to go up after Mass. My father would like to uh, read on Francis Street. And uh, we go up after Mass of uh, Sunday morning up to Francis Street. My Uncle Joe would be playing the bagpipes above in the room and we'd be out talking to my grandfather and that. But the Moonies are all Sassfields. They come from their mother was a Sassfield. My mother was a Sassfield. Owen Lynch's and Dennis Lynch's and Ralph Lynch's mother was a Sassfield. Is he? Yes, Dave Marr, another of uh, Joey's sons. Uh, you've gone on to make a name for yourself very successfully, I might add, in the music business. And uh, David, it all started for you when you were in, in short trousers. Dad started the whole band off because we had um, we had played in a, in another band, just myself, uh, Linda, and uh, older brother Mick, and we had uh, been in a band called uh, Sandy Blondie in the band, and we had appeared on Junior Showtime, believe it or not, which was a big show, on. Um, in England, and we went over there, we appeared on the show, we did a tour of England, and then the um, the, the, the lead singer decided to, he wanted to go solo, so the whole band broke up. We, Dad could see we were very disappointed about it, because it was great to be on the telly, you know, at seven years old, wasn't it? Uh, play, playing bass guitar in the band. It was a great band. I was, it was a teenage band, but I was the youngest in it, on the, on the, on the bass guitar and singing. And uh, it was just, Dad said, you know something, he had went to uh, Las Vegas, and he'd seen the Jackson 5. And it gave him the idea that, oh, my God, he says, you know something, we could do the same. So he was really thinking, you know, ahead of his time. And he was thinking outside the box, because this is the 70s, this is like 70, 71. And um, he came home and said, OK, we're going to form a band, the Mars. Oh, great, Dad. Now we need a drummer. So then little Eddie, Eddie was only five, oh, my God, a baby. But so Dad said to Eddie, OK, we need a drummer. So Eddie goes... Uh, Dad said, uh, will you play the drums? So Eddie goes, yeah, play the drums. So Dad goes down to Tommy Liddy in the sound shop, best in the world, Tommy, and he buys a fantastic drum kit. It was a see-through drum kit. It was a kit that you could see who was sitting behind the drums, which was very unusual. It was a Perspex. Great. We have a picture over there. It was a great picture of Eddie playing the drums, you know. And so Eddie started a whole band off behind us. Eddie was in the engine room and the band driving us. So there's Eddie on drums, my older brother Mick on lead guitar, okay? I was on bass and Dad was on rhythm and then Linda was on keyboards. It's a five-piece band. From Canada, we came back home to Ireland and we moved into Five Mounts and Oliver and sure, the hoolies and the singing continued. And I think we had no choice in the matter. <laughs> we enjoyed every bit of it. He said to each of us, you know, sing this song, sing the other song. We'd learn our little bits of songs and he loved to hear us singing. He was really enjoy- he enjoyed that. We started off and we did a lot of the local parish halls and we would do, you know, the Wheelchair Society would have little concerts and get-togethers. The parochial 
Medical Centre was a wonderful venue and sure we used to give a little five or ten minutes here and there and built up, um, for us it was experience with an audience and we did enjoy it. We On Christmas Day we might go into the Cottage Hospital and the Lord's Hospital and do a little session around the different floors there and you know all of that built up a great repertoire for us and experience with an audience and um, later on we joined a band, um, Elton Clotterhead, Sandy Blondie in the band and Noel McAvoy was the manager. We enjoyed that for a couple of years and when that broke up I think Joey decided, oh sure look we have enough now in the family, We can um, there's five of us and we can put a band together which is exactly what happened. Around 1972 yeah. we started to do our first gigs. I have a guitar and I play at different shows around the country like that. Shows like that, the counties put on for the ten top sports stars and they generally get in touch with me and I go and do a spot at the show. What sort of music is this, Joey? Well, mostly country and western we do. That's Georgie, my mate and I. Daddy loved the country and western. It was great in the band. We had Dave doing the pop and Mick liked his rock guitar. I covered the likes of Karen Carpenter and ABBA was huge in the 70s and that would be all my bag of songs. And, um, you know, we did a little mix of everybody. Eddie was on the drums, a super drummer. Um, rest in peace, Eddie. He really carried the band, drove a great rhythm behind us. So we had a little bit of everything, a bit of cabaret. And cabaret was huge in the 70s and 80s. And uh, we were able to perform all over Ireland and England, really. The man, Bob Lambert, Bashby and Gary Shaw. Stay tuned and find out which actors won this week on your Opportunity Knock. We gradually got so much better and better and better. And then we went to a huge, big audition up in the uh, country club in Port Manor in Dublin. Dad brought us up. He said, OK, let's try this. So we went up. And lucky enough, Huey and his producers loved it. So they booked us for the show. And we appeared on it in January 1978. Oh, my God, yeah? yeah. Wasn't that great? And at the time, there was 25 million people watched it. Isn't that incredible? What an audience. So what was the format of Opportunity Knox? You see, what we did in Opportunity Knox is, you see, um, we used to record the music because they wanted to make sure that you were playing exactly as good you could. And then, you see, I would drop the bass and I would perform out front because I, I think, um, you know, it, it looks better, you know, as you're singing to not have a bass guitar. So that's how we, we did it at the time. And it worked really well because it came across well, you know. We were on it for a couple of weeks. I can't remember, basically, but I just know that... Uh, 1978 was the was the big year. I mean, uh, the, the, the reaction back in Drogheda must have been something else. Oh, look, come here. It was just amazing. Like It was the town of Drogheda that actually won it for us because, believe it or not, they told, the producers told us we had got massive, at the time you had to go down, get a postcard, write who you wanted to be, win the show, number one, number two, number three. That's the way they wanted to put it. And then you had to post it off to England. And we got thousands and thousands of votes. A couple of weeks, we um, the manager, uh, Johnny Hines was the manager at the time. We used to manage Dickie Rock. And he comes in. We were all in the, in the green room. And uh, he empties these sacks full of, of mail. But it was great. I remember the, uh, the main man was um, a guy called um, F- Phil Solomon. He, he was kind of like um, 
you know, Simon Cowell at the time. He was the he was the guy behind the scenes who signed you to to the acts. You see, and it was so funny. We were all sitting in this big office there, all these big you know pictures of stars on the world on the wall, like uh, Lena Zavaroni and the Bachelors. You know, and he was saying. He was saying, Dave, he said, you are better looking than Cliff Richard. And everyone <laughs> fell in the place laugh. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did you stay in, in England yeah, during the whole thing? What we do is we, we traveled all over England playing like an assembly, assembly room in Derby's, which is amazing, um, amazing uh, place. Uh, believe it or not, you drive, what you used to do is you used to drive the articulated trucks onto a stage and the stage then would be elevated on an elevator up to the level of the concert hall. We thought that was absolutely amazing. We just drove our van in and it went straight up and then we took everything out. But you're actually on the stage and then you go back there and you drive the van off, you see. But the assembly room in Derby was amazing. I always remember, um, you see, after the show, you used to have a meet and greet and there was a queue from the front of the, uh, right the front of the stage, that's where we did it, all the way back to the to the hall. It was just incredible the power of television when, when you when you when you become successful on it. It's just amazing how people, you know, just want to, your autograph and just to talk to you. It was just I always remember that. I thought that was just amazing. So we travelled all over England, you know. Then we went to Denmark, we played over there for a while. That, 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 that was a great country too to play in too, you know. How did the band evolve then or how long did your dad stay involved? Well well dad handed it over to us and then um we oh, shall we travel everywhere, you know, and started making the the albums and the singles, and it was, it was a great time in my life, like to be together, you know, with my brothers. I, I, like it kept us together for an extra twenty years. Because what happens is, you see, when you when you know when you get the teenager, you know, I was just gone sixteen. I think it was three weeks after me sixteenth birthday when we started winning it, and um, so what we did is uh, we used to travel together and normally at that age 16 17 18 you kind of want to go off and do your own thing so you kind of leave the family so it was the music that kept us together for the extra 20 years and they were the best time of my life you know and here he is mr star maker himself your host huey green 
watching. He was watching. Eddie, he wasn't watching me, you see. He said, and he probably came, he came, probably said, well, if the youngster's not good, the father must be a genius. He handed back with <laughs> He always loved to sing, play a guitar, have a laugh, entertain, uh, which proved very beneficial to the family. They won the X Factor of their time. They won Opportunity Knocks and... They travelled the length and breadth of the country uh, at that time performing. Indeed, that's when I sort of, shortly after that, I met Linda, and so I experienced the travel round with them. And everywhere you went, somebody knew Joey. I, I don't know the hell how it was, but somebody knew him. My world today is broken too. And the fact that Joey was well-travelled and so well-known came in handy for his next venture. This time he found himself behind the bar, a publican in the old Penny Farthing on Georgia Street. It was just after sat and taking a drink and we were having a drink and Ned Bones was putting us out and I asked him another thing. I was Ned closing to him and I just said, well, look, maybe we buy the place and then we don't want to put us out. And the phone rang the next morning, Brian Warren. Brian's in Australia. I hear you bought a pub last night. I said, I didn't. You didn't. Ned Bones said you bought the Benny Fadden's, you could manage it now. Then, to see, you'd run the place and you'd be able to play in it yourself. So, see, I heard you didn't get a gig in it last night. So, we uh, went on from there and we bought the pub anyway. We started the, the draw of the country club. I think I knew there was an opening for country music. Liam Riley, you were a very close friend of Joey's. You were involved in the draw of the country club. You can remember when uh, when Joey bought the pub. He opened in September of uh, 78 and he closed in the spring of uh, 83. On Friday nights in particular, he would have the likes of um, Bagatelle and uh, the Floating Dublin Blues Band and people like that who, who packed the place. And then on a Monday night, the country music club uh, was huge for a long time. But uh, the problem there was that the bands became so so expensive and it, like the first time first night that it was run it was 20 pence in to see Hugo Duncan and then we put it up to 50 pence for Ray Lynham and the Hillbillies which was still no money and like at that stage you could get a band for about 125 quid but um, they kept going up and up and up so eventually and then when they started on a Monday night there was nothing else really on in town but by the time that it finished on the Monday night there was something like 15 gigs on around the place so at, at that stage it, it, Joey was selling the place so it, it folded up When you'd hear the stories, you'd be scratching your head saying to yourself, where is he going here? And uh, generally, they were 100% right. In 1998, Professor Marion Elliott wrote a book on Wolf Tone, uh, just in time for the 200th anniversary of the United Irishmen's Rebellion. And I bought the book, and he, he said to me, what are, you, what are you reading these days? And I said, Joey, I'm reading about Wolf Tone. And he said, oh, Wolf Tone, he said, you know, he said, I'm, I played handball against Jack Tone who was a great, 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 great grandson of Wolftone, and he lived in Arkansas. And I said to myself, well, that's another of Joey's stories. And I went home that evening, uh, Coleman, and I had a cup of coffee, and I opened the book, and the very first line of the introduction, it said, uh, this was Marion Elliott writing our introduction, and her opening line in the book is, I am grateful to Mr. Jack Tone of Arkansas for access to the Tone family papers. He was spot on. He was spot on. Joey had played him, so I just gave up at that stage. I just gave up. Joey was a gifted storyteller and had a charisma about him that was infectious, and he was only too delighted to impart his knowledge onto others, primarily in the handball alleys when he took on the role of mentor and coach. Two of his protégés hailed from the greater Drogheda area and both enjoyed great success in Ireland and further afield. 
Peter Magoli was one of those. First memory I have of Joey Wye was about 14 years of age, which would have been back in the early 80s. And uh, my my dad brought me down to introduce me to Joey and have a game. And Joey take a look at me and uh, hit it off with Joey. We played... Uh, twice every week and uh, I really got got into training very very competitively with Joey a year later I won my first All-Ireland and uh, six months after that I won the uh, US Under 15 Handball Championship so that's my first memory of Joey Joey had some great stories of his handball career and I remember all the the years and dates that uh, Joey was successful because he he talked about it maybe 50 or 60 times so I knew 67 was his uh, World Championship 64 was the first time he went so I can I can remember all those dates still today uh, Joey was a larger than life person uh, everybody loved Joey from uh, in the sporting world in uh, social world and in, in every kind of circumstance Joey was, uh, was, was a great character Peter you retired from playing at a young age you were only 28 that was the late 1990s was Joey would he have been disappointed with your decision or did he try to persuade you to carry on yeah that was an understatement when I, when I finished playing Joey would always every time I, I meet him years after I stopped playing he'd always remind me you should never you should have never stopped you weren't getting into your best years but anyway that's just the, the path I chose but I mean for yourself there were multiple Irish titles and there was Amer- there were American titles as well yeah that's right yeah um, I've I've won world under 17 championship numerous uh, All-Ireland minor titles and then I've uh, eight senior uh, All-Ireland medals so did did well for the short time uh, he was he was a great man you, you, I always try to figure out how he fitted so much in in his life because he was involved in so much wasn't he yes Joey had a, a, an illustrious career he was um, he was a great handball player and after his handball days he was in Greyhounds and uh, he was a musician he was a, a painting contractor so Joey uh, had, had several different aspects to his life I suppose he had great um, psychology tips about playing uh, matches in, in tight situations and what to do and what to say and uh, strategically uh, Joey was always a big help uh, to any handball player Do you feel that he got a great sense of personal satisfaction when you won a, one of those war titles that he was involved in in some small way in it yeah absolutely Joey would uh, would always celebrate any any wins I would have over the years and uh, and would take uh, defeats that maybe I shouldn't have done uh, with a lot of disappointment and uh, that was Joey he'd let you know about it Joey's other major success story centred on a player from across the county boundary in Mead former national and world champion Walter O'Connor who later went on to become handball president can remember well his area encounters with a great man very much so dad was involved in, in the Newtown Blues and Joey was playing the Newtown Blues and there was Frank Heron and Pascal McGosfin Dan Rock Jim Hickey all great guys and uh, as I said being a mead man I was very well looked after and loud and I have to say the Newtown Blues were, were great and Dad put me in one night. He asked Joey, I was only 15, he said, would you give this fella a game? And Joey was more or less saying, it's a waste of my time. And uh, I went in anyway, and after about, I'd say maybe a half an hour, he came out and his saying on the day was to Dad, I wouldn't like to have that fella after me. And that was the start of our association. And then from then on, he became my coach, my mentor, my friend, and uh, yeah, my hero, I suppose. Joey had a, had a great love of a handball, but uh, myself and Peter McCauley were the guys that he trained, and he equally uh, wanted both of us to do well. He was there all the time. Obviously, the great Duxie Walsh was, was our kind of enemy, you know, and I remember, um, it's hard to believe the two of them are gone now, but I remember being in the kitchen when Joey passed away and Duxie came in and Duxie said, I said, there was a lot of plans made against me in this kitchen. I said, you better believe it. We were out to assassinate you every way we could.
That was a great period for handball in general, wasn't it? Was great, great rivalries during that period. Well, unbelievable rivalries because, I mean, as I said, Peter McCauley, fantastic handballer, Duxie, fantastic handballer, Eddie Corbett, Tom Sheridan and myself. And really on any given day, anybody could beat anybody. And um, massive rivalry, really, to be honest with you, between us all. But a super time for handball, you know. And uh, yeah, like, I mean, myself and Duxie, I suppose, in a way, between myself, Duxie and Peter, we probably opened every handball court in Ireland for exhibition and uh, we were always the last one not to get a ham sandwich when we came out, you know. And what was, Joey, what was he like as a coach? What kind of uh, instructions did he hand down to you? What what was his philosophy as to how to play the game and how to win matches, big matches? I think Joey's philosophy was what I loved about him and, and was when you'd be talking to him after a match or a training session, he'd go back over all the great games he was in and what he was involved in but Joey had unbelievable passion and he'd be gritting his teeth and he'd be you know he he knew because he was in all the positions that I was going to face through my humble career and you're kind of wondering it's like your parents how did they know this is going to happen but I think it was the fact that he was so great he won everything but he'd lived through all the ups and downs of it you know and his passion and his love of it was was unbelievable really you know And was he a mentor that would praise you when you won and criticise you when you lose? Well you know I, I said we had some great stories there uh, when you won he'd say I'm proud of you Ollie and that used to call me Wally you know and I remember before a couple of All-Ireland finals I'd, I'd go in and I'd sit with him in the kitchen and he'd be sitting there looking at me and uh, he'd make me stand up and stand sideways and frontways and if I wasn't in shape he wouldn't go you know but um, I think one of the great stories that'll stick with me forever and I suppose if people want to talk about how Joey Mara taught her the motivational it came in 98 I was after losing uh, five finals to Duxie this was our sixth time and people said you'd never beat him or there, there's a hoodoo over you and Duxie was, was a legend but went into Joy the night before anyway and he physically passed me fit anyway he said he was going to come you know and as I was going out the door he said uh, well he just remember one thing he said in 20 years time he said someone will look down a bar in a pub and they'll say do you see that man down the end of the bar he was one of the greatest handballers that ever played handball and he says, just then a fellow will stick his head in and go, yeah, but he never bet Duxie Walsh. <laughs> so that stuck with me all that night. And uh, obviously, thankfully, got lucky and uh, beat Duxie in 98. And finally, as I exercised that ghost, but the first thing I said to Joey was, there'll be nobody slagging me down the bar. And he just laughed and smiled. In spite of his commitments with coaching, Joey still found time to continue his own playing routine and on a weekly basis would meet up with some of his old mates for a match or two. Pascal McGuffin became a very good friend, even though Joey was a decade his senior. Ten years exactly, almost in a day. But uh, the first time I ever saw Joey Maher, he was doing a gig in Patrick O'Hagan's pub in West Street, Drada, and I didn't get to meet him then, but when the Blues Club opened in 1974... Then Joey came on the scene and gradually got to know him and eventually ended up playing handball with him quite a lot, even though I would have been the stooge. <laughs> but we were playing the Aratlis one night, I remember. It was nearly, nearly one of our last games, but between us we had the four-man team. We had 280 years between us. <laughs> so it was a fair bit of experience there of different coins, you know. But Joey was a wonderful character, a great sense of humour. I always had an anecdote about every different thing you could talk about, be it dogs or handball or even painting. <laughs> but you, you played handball now before you met Joey, did you? No, I didn't. I never saw a game of handball until the Blues Club opened in 1974. I hadn't a clue. So I used to play with a few fellas my own age then, which would have been in the tutty mark. We gradually, you know, as Joey was diminishing, getting older, he began to come down the ranks with the guys he played with, like me and Frank Clark, uh, Dick Devlin, uh, Jim Hickey. 
uh, we used to play at least two nights a week to walk up a toast in the end, to be tell you the truth, more than anything. And uh, But every game was an all Ireland final. There was no j- joking or messing in the alley. Sometimes Joey wasn't a great loser. If he uh, lost, it might take him a half an hour to get back into the flow of things up in the bar. But uh, he was a great character, no two ways about it, yeah. So I was in uh, Phoenix with the... Irish handball team as, as, as a supporter and Joey was playing there and we were some wonderful times but the one thing Joey Joey threatened to go home because he couldn't get a spud to eat in Phoenix <laughs> and he eventually went up to his brother in Canada who lived there but that was all laid down before anything happened you know packed a hell of a lot into his life and he was telling us of an instance a lot of his paint work was for the, the priests or the, the church you know and he was telling us he was painted somewhere down in Kerry and he was going along on his bike with two paint cans on the handlebars, you know. And he saw these guys passing by on bikes. He said, cheers, they're not going to pass me. And off he goes and gets ahead of them. Turned out it was a race of <laughs> 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 proper cyclists. And Joey claims he was there to greet them when they came to the finish line. Going as many good times with him, having a, a jar and a bit of a sing-song and stuff like that, yeah. He was always great company, I have to say, yeah. And a very decent man, you know, as well as all that, you know. Liam Riley, you can remember a story Joey told you about uh, when he came back after winning the, the world title in 67, he came back to Drogheda. There was a, a, a reception out in the Green Isle Hotel and Jimmy McGee asked him, Joey, would you not have preferred to be wearing the, the Irish singer? And he says, do you know what, Jimmy? Even better to see the loud singer. Or better again, he says, I'm a very proud Drogheda man. I'd love to be wearing the red and black of Drogheda. So they're coming home that evening, uh, Monday evening, about seven o'clock. And as they were coming under the railway bridge in the Dublin Road, here's the Drahada band coming up with Peter Moore, the mayor, at the head of them. And Peter waves him there and he says, Stop, Joey, stop, stop. And Joey said, The tears well up in my eyes. See these red and black flags on the band out to welcome me. And Peter says, Joey. And he signed it the down team. <laughs> because it was his first time back in the town after winning the title. Well, Joey might never have gotten to wear the colours of his town, but red and black represented traps one and four in another of his sporting interests, greyhound racing, and Joey boasted some very good ones in his day. I remember refusing 20000 for a dog because I just thought this dog would win the derby. I was more of a, what would, what would you call it? I was more of a fellow just wanting to win. I refused the 20000 Rose Baldwin, and I remember Matty Moon and the Lord of Mass, you know, stopping me and in, in, in the dogs in Navin saying, I was there with Rose Baldwin, you see, and I was getting the bitch there with, with, with brilliant chimes. She told me, you refused 20,000 for fast, Eddie. I did, mate. Well, your father had turned on his grave, you see, if he thought you'd done that. Leonard Kinsella here in Slane. Uh, Leonard, you had a very close association with uh, Joey through Greyhound Racing, through the dogs, um, but, you, but you actually met him through Walker, is that correct? Joey had a painting company that uh, did quite a bit of work for jobs that I was involved in and uh, of course I got to know Joey personally then and knew all about his handball exploits and so on and he knew I had an interest in the Greyhounds so uh, that ultimately led to us um, getting a bit closer on that end of it and uh, Joey said to me one day, he said, why don't you start and we get the old dogs going again. So that happened in the early 2000s and um, we went on from there. From what I know, Joey would have been involved in dogs way back 
Uh, in fact, uh, I know he's involved with the, the terrier racing. In fact, that's where that started in Drogheda back in the probably late fifties. He went, ultimately went on to you know train quite a few greyhounds. He had he, he had quite a bit of success. I recall some of the names: uh, Linda's Critic, Fast Eddie, and so on. And they were very good dogs who won quite a bit for Joey. Uh, but uh, Joey had the checkered career, as we know. He he was involved in many sports, but he had the second coming in the greyhounds when I got to meet him and uh, we started off again so it was a second career of the greyhounds that, that uh, I got to know Joey and you had a bit of success yeah we had a bit of success yeah it was all uh, came upon us uh, I was on a construction project in Egypt and uh, an Irish chap there asked me would I be interested in a greyhound that he had bred but hadn't time to uh, get involved in, in running so I had to look at it and agreed to take it on Joey became on board then and that was a dog called Wish Kid and we had quite a bit of success with Wish Kid uh, starting around 2002 or 2003. He was uh, an exceptional dog, uh, early speed, fast breaker and uh, I suppose his main claim to fame was that he was the first dog to beat the Late Late Show. Uh, the Late Late Show was a famous dog owned by Pat Kenny of the Late Late Show fame. We beat him in uh, a race in the Champion Stakes semi-final. Now, to be fair, if we had another length or two over the line, we would, ha- we would have been beaten, but we were the first dog to beat him and he had 16 consecutive wins. I remember very well Joey was interviewed by uh, Tracy Piggott, yeah, and of course, uh, Joey was delighted to get an opportunity to... Uh, <laughs> to uh, talk about the dog and his career in the racing. It, it was on TV at the time. That night we had um, we were at all inside after the race and poor old Pat wasn't too pleased, Pat Kenny. <laughs> Pat, did, Pat didn't like to be beaten, but uh, he was graceful enough about it at the end. Joey was tops. I mean, he, he had a reputation for, for being able to, you know, to uh, bring a dog along. Uh, he was very experienced in what was required in regard to, you know, taking young dogs, not, not bringing them on too, too quickly. Patient man, that's really where he shone. For all the good times, there were also some sad moments in Joey's life, none more so than when he lost his son Eddie in 2009. Eddie was one of the greatest drummers the town of Drogheda had ever produced. We lost a genius to Eddie. Was, like, Eddie could have played with big bands and he wouldn't leave the boys, you know. The, I remember he, he got off us to go with big bands and uh, he didn't He didn't go. Eddie's untimely passing came just months after Joey was formally recognised for his handball achievements with the unveiling of a life-size sculpture overlooking the Boyne. It was a very proud moment for the entire Maher family. The statue was a wonderful time, yes, and a great tribute to Dad. We were we were very happy to do it while he was alive. It was a wonderful day now to, to see that and to see how proud Dad was. Two occasions, I think, I really saw him very, very happy was the statue and when he was awarded his fellowship in Dundalk DKIT. Two very proud moments now he really enjoyed those days I classed that statue as everything was a share and it had nothing to do with the handball of Milner Paul Murphy, local journalist, uh, former group editor with the Drogheda Independent newspaper. Paul, you would have come across Joey quite a bit during your career. Joey was a great a great hero to Drogheda. People loved him, of course, because of his personality. He was a very funny man in a lot of ways and was a great man for telling yarns and singing a song, of course. And from a newspaper point of view, Paul, it must have been great being an editor to have the likes of Joey Marr to, to write about and obviously sell copies of your newspaper every week, 
because people wanted to read about this man. Well, that's right. There were no other means of communication. You didn't have, you know, you didn't have television, for instance. You had radio and you had, and, and then there was, the, the coverage was, was very much hit and miss. The 1950s could be described as a golden era uh, for sport in Loud. We shouldn't forget that at that time there was no internet, there were no fax machines, there were no smartphones. Uh, We basically had the newspapers and radio. So whenever these big sporting events arose, uh, there was a huge interest from the public. Newspapers of the time sold out whenever there was a big occasion coming up. So between 1950 and 1960, in that decade, we saw, you know, Tony Byrne, uh, who won a bronze medal in the uh, for boxing at the Melbourne Olympics, 1956. Then we had the Baltre golfer Philomena Garvey, who from 1953 to 63 was unbeaten in the Irish Women's Amateur Close Championships. Um, a fantastic athlete all round. Do you remember writing much and focusing on Joey much, uh, Paul? Yes, there was huge interest in handball and Drogheda at the time, mainly played at, at, at Millmount. Of course, that, that, uh, that venue now is, is, is closed up and uh, it's no longer a handball a handball alley. But at that time, there was a huge interest. It was one of, the, one of the main sports, if you like, along with GAA at the time. At that time, they had, then, they had the famous uh, Maher family band uh, comprising all the, all, the, all the family members, his sons and, and his daughter, uh, Linda. Joey was a lovely fellow. He was a, he was a great raconteur. He could tell a great story and he could tell a great, very funny story. I remember being, having a drink with him one day in Hanratty's pub in, in Scarlet Street and he was, he was trying to say that, you know, that um, uh, somebody had died and were buried in the local cemetery and that on the back of his uh, tombstone uh, there was written, uh, gone fishing. Now, I, I, I didn't believe this, you know, and uh, so I went up, I went up looking and I found the grave of this particular man who was a great fisherman, an angler. And on the back of his tombstone was gone fishing. <laughs> but uh, Joey then tried to tell me then that there was another man up there who had on the back of his gravestone, I told you I was sick. <laughs> now, that that turned out not to be true. It was Spike Milligan, I think. Yeah, well, that was Spike, Spike, Spike Milligan. So, so you have Philomena Garvey, you have Joey Maher, you have Tony Soxbourne, you have Gary Kelly, Ian Hart, GA players who would have played on the 57 team from Drogheda as well. Uh, where, in your opinion, would, would Joey rate, or is it, is it very difficult to pick out one outstanding Drogheda sports person? Well, it's very difficult. It, it is very difficult to pick one person out. Joey's heart was always in Drogheda, and uh, there was a great, great, immense pride for, for Joey in, in, the, in the town. Really some man for one man, wasn't he? Apart from his skill as a, as a handball player, like, like he really started us all off in the music industry and then we have brought it down to our kids. The magnetism seemed to be with Joey, I'd always have to say that. He'd always pull the crowd no matter what. He was a great ambassador for sport anywhere he went. No matter what village or parish he went into, everybody knew Joey. He, he was as well known as a, as a big an ass around the place. We worked together, we played together, so it was... <laughs> There were a, a lot of contact over the years. We were always close family. Yeah, he was my idol. That's all I can say. Some people would consider that myself and Duxie were in the top realms, but I mean, I I played Joey when I was a teenager, and um, I was good even as a teenager, and he was unbelievable. He was uh, he was the best handballer I ever played, and he's my idol. So to me, he's the greatest. There was a couple of Saturday nights I'd leave him home, and he he made a point 
of saying to me that, you know, he had lived a wonderful life. He'd covered, did everything he ever dreamed to do and enjoyed himself and had a lovely family and loved mummy, you know. So, yes, he, he was very happy and he, he, I, I don't feel too sad knowing that he, he had a very contented and happy life, you know. I don't regret anything in my life that happened. That's the gospel truth. Not one regret have I had in what happened in my life anyways. Joey, the documentary, was presented and produced by Colin Corrigan, with sincere thanks to the Marr family and all contributors. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, with a television licence fee. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.